Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9, and Martha and Gabe and Cody and Jenny, thank you for leading us to worship the Lord in song this morning. Um, As you might know, it's summertime, and so we have a lot of people that are traveling. We have a few people that are out that are ill, and um, it's not just plug and play up here. The folks that lead us, they they practice, they rehearse, they work hard to be able to come and do what they do, and so I'm just thankful for that. I wanted to mention that. And um, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the sixth trumpet out of seven. Last week we looked at the fifth trumpet and what is described as the first woe in the Revelation. Now, this is the sixth trumpet, but we haven't come to the end of the second woe. We have another chapter in front of us. So we're going to look at this sixth trumpet, see what the Lord has to teach us about the judgment that he is going to pour out or is pouring out upon the world. So if you would, just look with me, chapter 9, verse 13, where we read this. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I, that is John, heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is God's word. Would you pray with me before we begin to study it? Father, I thank you for your word. Even in these passages that reveal things that are hard to understand, And even if we understand them, in many ways they are hard for us to receive. But Lord, I do pray that you would prepare our minds and hearts to receive the things that we have been given, the things that you have revealed to us. And I pray that we would respond in a way that is appropriate, that we would praise you as the God who reveals all mysteries and the God who rules over all creation, and that we would respond faithfully to the Lord Jesus Christ and his calling upon our lives to be faithful, to be salt, to be light. Lord, I pray that 
you would have your way with us today. Teach us from your word as we study it. Be glorified in our response to it and help us to walk faithfully as a result. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The human eye is one of the most incredible of all of God's creations. As a system, it is so complex that if you remove one part of it, it will cease to function in any meaningful way. In his book, Darwin's Black Box, Michael Behe draws attention to the irreducible complexity of many biological systems that make human life possible, and he argues that these systems are so complex that they cannot have evolved because to reduce the system in any way would cause the system not to function. And the eye, the human eye, is one of those systems. The human eye is a marvel of God's creative design, and we, as human beings, with knowledge and experience and understanding, have learned to enhance the eye's ability so that we can see even more amazing things. For instance, with a telescope, we can look out into space and we can see stars and planets and galaxies within our solar system and even beyond. And with a microscope, we can zoom into the tiniest of details on a particular thing. And through these visual enhancements, we have the ability to focus our eyes on whole new worlds. Now, studying the Revelation, I believe, is a little like that. At times, we zoom in to the details to make sense out of these visions and, and what is this saying and where is it coming from and who is saying it and what's moving and all of these different things. And at other times, we have to zoom out to see the big picture and remember the big truths that Scripture is revealing to us. And throughout our study in the Revelation, there is no truth bigger or more important that we should learn than the fact of God's absolute sovereignty. With the turn of every page, we are reminded that God and the Lamb sit upon the throne of reality. While all of these things are moving around, while humans are scurrying about, and even as we've learned in the last few weeks, as demons are moving behind the scenes, it is God who commands, it is God who orchestrates His sovereign purpose for everything. As we study this book, we can zoom in on the details, but we miss the big picture if, we don't, if, if our vision of God's control of the universe does not grow. And it's not that his control grows, it's our understanding of his control that grows. This would have been a comfort to the church in John's day as they were suffering, as they were seeing world forces moving against them. It would have been a, a comfort for them to know as they read this book to realize that though it seems as though the world is spiraling out of control, it's not. God is still on his throne. God is still accomplishing his purpose. And we can take comfort in this, that as the world spins on, and as the nations continue to rage, and as life gets harder for us as Christians, and the sins in the world become more and more shocking to us, this book is reminding us that God is still on his throne. And he's composing a symphony of his grace and his holiness and his judgment. In our passage 
this morning, we see, we learn that as this sixth trumpet is blown, demonic forces take an even greater stride toward their hellish goals. But behind it all is the voice that comes from the throne, the voice that comes from beyond the altar. It's the voice of God, and he is moving all things in order to accomplish his purpose and judgment. So that's what we see. So let's look first back at verse 13 to understand something of this voice that comes from the golden altar. The sixth angel, we read in verse 13, blew his trumpet, and John heard a voice. Now, this is often the case. He doesn't tell us that, the, that God is speaking. He, he tells us that a voice comes from the throne or a voice comes from the altar, and this is a reference to God. This is a reference to the ones sitting on the throne. God and the Lamb are sitting upon the throne. And so this voice comes from the horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. That's the command. Now, there are a couple of things that we see in these verses that for those of you who have been studying with us throughout this study, um, there's going to be some, um, some recall back to the things that we've already seen. And for those of you who are just here, you haven't been involved in this study, I'll kind of go through it to help you understand where we've been and what we're seeing here. The first thing we see is we see this altar being referenced. And this is not the first time we've seen this altar being referenced. This altar has already been referenced a couple of times. The golden altar before God with the four horns upon it, it represents the altar where the prayers of God's people make their way to God's ears. This is a a reference, again, to the altar of incense. And what we're seeing here as this, this trumpet sounds and the voice comes is that our prayers, the prayers of God's people, are being answered in this judgment. Now, what prayers exactly? Well, that's where we're going to go back. When the fifth seal, the fifth seal was opened in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we saw that those who had given their lives for Christ were crying out beneath this altar, and they were crying out to God, how long, O Lord, must we wait? And it was a cry for justice. We've, we've given our lives. How long must we wait until you... you make vengeance come upon those who took our lives. That was the first time we see this altar in the book of the Revelation. In chapter 8, as we move from the second vision to the third vision of the Revelation, once again, this altar comes into view. And what we see in that particular case is that the the prayers of the saints that were offered on this altar were mixed with the the incense, and then an angel began to swing the golden censer. Do you all remember that in chapter 8? And it was a way for us to understand that the next vision was going to show God answering the prayers that were were prayed in Revelation chapter 6. Well, now here, as the sixth trumpet is blown, the picture we get as it just flows down through this book is that the cries of God's people are finally being answered. The cries for vengeance, the cries for justice are going to be answered, and they're being answered because God chooses at this moment to unleash the four angels that have been held back. Now, we've seen four angels before. We've seen four winds before. We've seen the four corners of the earth. We've seen references to four already. Now, I believe that what this is referring to is that this is a reference back to Revelation chapter 7, 
where we had this little interlude within the second vision. And in this interlude, as, we've, as the sixth seal was opened, we have this break, and there's this point at which God says, hold back the four winds until I seal all of my people. Do you all remember that? And when God begins to seal all of his people, he's talking about his elect. He's going to put a seal upon their foreheads, which is a reference to our faith in Christ. And I believe that now the time has come for those to be released. Now, not everyone agrees with that. Some people are going to say, no, that's two different things, and that's fine. This is just my interpretation. of I'm trying to make sense of all of this. But I believe that the angels here that are being released is going back. It's a callback to the reference to the four winds that were held back. And that tells us something. Well, whether you believe that or not, we learned something about these angels in this text. These angels have been bound. They've been bound against their will, which lets us know that these aren't good angels. These are evil angels. Again, just like we saw last week, God is unleashing demonic forces upon the, the unbelieving world as an instrument of his judgment. The voice of God is calling from the altar to set these beings loose upon the world. They had been bound by God, but now they're being released to carry out God's purpose of judgment against sin. And these demonic angels were bound at the great river Euphrates. And while that may not mean a whole lot to us, other than the fact that, well, yeah, we read about the river Euphrates in the Bible, that would have meant a lot to John's original audience. And here's why. In the Old Testament, the prophets specifically the prophet Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, and Jeremiah, they all prophesied about God's coming judgment upon Israel for Israel's sin. And when they referenced that judgment coming, they referenced it as an army that was just outside the borders of the promised land on the other side of the Euphrates, and they were, they were massing in, in readiness to come against the, the sins of God's people. They spoke of this army being stationed just outside the river, and it was an army of horsemen, and it was an army who moved like serpents. It was an army who crept like locusts, all while wearing breastplates of iron. And John is using the exact same language that they used in the Old Testament prophecy about the coming judgment of God, only John ratchets up their intensity. Now, John also, in drawing on these prophecies... He's letting us know that war is coming. He's not talking about a specific war. I believe he's talking about war in general, at least at this point. Now, if you flip ahead to the bowls, the, so you've got three different series of judgments. You've got the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. If you flip ahead to the bowl judgments in Revelation chapter 16, you will see, again, that there is an army on the other side of the Euphrates, and when they cross over, guess what war happens? It's the Battle of Armageddon, right? So we'll get to that in a couple of months. But the picture that John is painting here is that God is about to unleash judgment upon the world, and that judgment is coming in the form of war incited by demonic influence. Think about this. Is there a more disastrous event in human affairs than war? Is there ever a time when humanity looks more and acts more like demons than in times of war? 
There is nothing pleasant about war. Even when war is just, even when the cause of war is just, war is still monstrous and hellish and awful. And the picture we get in this particular vision is that when God removes his hand of protection, right? He's been holding these forces back. Now he's letting them go when God removes his hand of protection and he allows humanity to engage in warfare. It is an ultimate form of judgment. There's only one trumpet left. So we're nearing the end of this particular series of judgments and the sixth trumpet warns of war. And it even gives us a description of the army that has been unleashed. Let's look at the four angels and their mounted troops. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, they were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And then John says, I heard their number, which is an indication that he heard, he didn't see 10,000 times 10,000, but we'll talk about that. Now, God not only commands these demonic angels to be set free, but notice in the text that it's very clear. God prepared them. He planned for this down to the very hour. They were prepared, and once again, God's sovereignty is coming into view. Now, I don't know about you, I had a lot of good conversations after last week's sermon. People said things like, I never imagined, I never conceptualized thought that God would use demonic forces as an instrument in his judgment on the world. But I believe that's exactly what we see happening last week in the, in the fifth trumpet and this week in the sixth trumpet. And it shows this grand picture of God moving events on earth according to his purpose and will. And he's willing to use everything. But it also tells us that there's nothing within all of creation that's outside the scope of his authority and control. There is God and there's everything else. Perhaps you've never considered that God would use demons as an instrument of his judgment, but that's exactly what we see. Now don't think as many video games and um, movies might want you to think, don't think of Satan as God's arch enemy. They aren't evenly matched. At no point in time has there ever been a threat to God's sovereign rule. Satan and demons are pawns. They live, they exist because God allows them to. They move because God wills to use them for his own purposes. And we learn over and over from the, the life of Joseph all the way back in Genesis to the end of the entire book here in the Revelation that what they mean for evil, God uses for good. When we say that God is sovereign, we are acknowledging that he has supreme authority to execute his eternal purposes. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is God. If he is God, then he must be in control of all things. He must be 
hindered by no thing, and he must be able to do all his holy will in whatever way he chooses. And this is what we see happening in the Revelation. God is moving all things, all things, in order to accomplish his purpose. Nothing is outside the scope of his control. And this is a foundational doctrine, not only of the Revelation, but of all of Scripture. Maybe you're familiar with Stephen Lawson. He writes this, From its opening verse, the Bible asserts in no uncertain terms that God is and that God reigns. In other words, he is God, not merely in name, but in full reality. God does as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, how he pleases, and with whom he pleases. All other doctrines of the Christian faith must be brought into alignment with this keystone truth. All the forces of history are under his sovereign control. He is the Almighty One, and his power is on display as these things are being released to accomplish his purpose, which is, in this particular case, the judgment of one-third of human life on earth. One-third of human life on earth. To give you perspective on that, the current world population is just over 7.8 billion people. And a third of that would come out to just over 2.5 billion people. That's an absurd, obscene amount of people dead. And it's happening because God has chosen to remove the restraints that he has placed upon human evil and misery. In other words, when God gives us over to what we deserve... Life on earth becomes hellish. We talk about God's grace in, in, in the different facets of it. We talk about God's saving grace, his specific grace given to his people, to those who believe. And then we talk about uh, God's common grace that's extended to even the unbeliever. And this is a picture of God's common grace just being removed to allow these forces to accomplish what he has planned. Joel Beakey d details the hell that we create when nations decide that war is the best option. He says this, think about the millions of people who have been killed in wars. According to some estimates, between the year 1480 and the year 1941, so we're just talking about almost 500 years, he says this, Britain has engaged in 78 wars. France in 71, Spain in 64, Russia in 61, Austria in 52 wars, Germany in 23 wars, the United States in 13, China in 11, and Japan in 9. And still, the war drums keep sounding. Many countries are at war right now. We, we've seen on the news for over a month, I don't even remember how long it's been, where, where Ukraine and Russia are at war with one another. And the death toll continues to climb. Think of how much bloodshed there has been and how many people have been exterminated during times of war. And, and we don't really have to think. We actually have some pretty solid numbers. It is estimated that over 123 million people died in the 20th century 
as a result of war. 123 million people in 100 years. That's just over one-third of the current U.S. population. Man's murderous anger toward man is a judgment from God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, are you all familiar with that name? He was a pastor. He once said that God allowed two world wars in the 20th century because man thought he had things under his control. And it's as if God says, you, you want to know what it's like when you take the reins? Here, let me remove my hands of grace and you will see what you are capable of when I give you over to your own lusts and ideas. We become monsters when God's restraining power is removed. And this shouldn't surprise us, not if we know our Bibles. When you read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we learn that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on to tell us that the way that God's wrath is being revealed against mankind is that he has removed certain restraints and he's given mankind over to our wicked ideas, our wicked passions. It says this, God's judgment is seen in him handing over the reins of authority to our impure hearts, our dishonorable passions, and our depraved or debased minds. And when this happens, the extent of man's cruelty and depravity is put on display. And I think that's a picture of what we're seeing when this sixth trumpet is blown. John hears the voice from the altar. Number the, the military force that has been prepared for this day, and it stands at 200 million. I mean, just think of that. I mean, you can do all the math. You can put the numbers together, but just try to conceptualize 200 million people. We can't hardly do that. Not in one fighting force. And that's kind of the point here. The number is meant to be symbolic it's meant to show us that this fighting force that has been prepared to enact God's judgment upon the world is so massive that we cannot fathom this. 200 million mounted troops. The point being made is that there is nothing man can do to stop it. The judgment of God will come. It will accomplish God's purpose. But John didn't just hear the number spoken. John actually is allowed to see a vision to drive the point home. So let's look at the next section, these demon horses and their deadly mouths. Look at verse 17. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, and those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. Now you should have in your mind there red and blue and yellow, and these are the colors of blood and of smoke and of fire. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now, John's description of these demon horses is taken straight out of the pages of the Old Testament prophets. The more and more we read the Revelation, the more and more we will see the visions and the prophecies of the Old Testament coming to light here. This particular vision is from Jeremiah chapter 46, 
where Jeremiah talks about those forces amassing on the other side of the Euphrates River. They're wearing breastplates of iron. The idea there is that the, the iron is impenetrable to the weapons that Israel uh, possessed at that time. And these forces are coming, and they're coming like, they sound like serpents as they're marching, and they look like locusts as they spread out all over the, the earth to consume everything in their way. And the vision in Revelation takes that picture and then ratchets it up so that these demonic beings are even more fierce than the Old Testament images that we've already seen. These demon horses have, uh, they have heads like lions. They're ferocious, they're, they're vicious, and then they have this stuff pouring out of their mouths. Now, while I was reading that, I was stressing that phrase, out of their mouths. And if you noticed, we saw that the reference to what's coming out of their mouths three different times. And that's important. John is helping us understand something about the power of these beasts. The power of these beasts is going to be in their words, in their ability to speak, and specifically, because they're demonic, in their ability to speak falsehood and lead men astray by lies. Their weapons are idolatry, and false prophecy, and worldly lies. Now, all right, I'm going to... Again, the symbolism has to come into play here. Um, in, in Revelation 11, in 11 verse 5, when we read about the two witnesses, we'll get there in a while, when we read about the two witnesses, we, we read that they have power, and the power that they have is that fire proceeds from their mouths, and when the fire proceeds from their mouths, it is a punishment upon their persecutors. And in that particular case, the fire coming out of their mouth is a reference to their prophecy. It's a reference to them speaking the truth of God. Well, the fire proceeding from the mouths of these demon horses is not the truth of God. It's a lie, but it's the same symbol just being used in the opposite way. These devilish creatures and their devilish words are leading men astray and fanning into flame our sinful anger. Do you remember what James said about the power of words? Most of you don't, but we studied it not too long ago as a church. In James chapter 3 and verse 5, we read, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire. It has the power to consume an entire culture. It has the power to consume a world in unrighteousness. The lies of those who want power, the threats of those who want to keep power, the deception of those who want to undermine unity and overthrow governments come from the tongue, from the mouth. Ideas that keep the truth of God in the dark and men and women in bondage to their sins comes out of the mouth. And I think that's what John is seeing here. That's the symbolic nature of this picture. James says that the tongue is like a weapon of hell. It's as if Satan himself uses our tongue to spread his own brand of destruction and pollution and corruption all over the world. And that's what these horses are symbolizing, the deadly influence of wicked and worldly teaching. But will God's 
judgment have any impact that would result in repentance? Remember, these trumpets warn. The bowls are then poured out, but the trumpets are intended in part, not in whole, but in part to be a warning. That's why there's only a third of the particular area being destroyed or the particular you know, aspect of creation being destroyed. It has a warning effect. But what will happen? Will there be any repentance from worldly ideas that lead to destruction? Well, we see in verse 20 the answer to the question. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these three plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols. The three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur bring death to mankind, but not repentance. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, the men of this world will continue, and the women of this world will continue to harden their hearts instead of humbling themselves. They will hold on to the delusions that they believe about life and reality and what is true, and they will double down on the lies that will lead to their own destruction. And these judgments that serve as a warning from God should help us to see God's kindness, God's grace and kindness. How many opportunities has humanity had to turn from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? He has provided countless opportunities for us to see our sin and see the destruction before it comes. He extends his grace to us over and over. His desire is that we turn from our sin and trust in his son who gave his life to save us. But there comes a point, as we see here, as we see in Romans chapter 1, there comes a point when a line is drawn, when God says no more, and then he gives the world over to sin. When man continually rejects the knowledge of God, and chooses instead to serve the creature rather than the creator, the time will come when God will quite literally give us what we want. I know this is a a tough message. I warned you 25 weeks ago when we started this book. But this is a picture of God revealing to us something he wants us to understand. Because he wants us to respond in an appropriate way to it. So how can we respond appropriately? to what we see in this unfolding judgment. Three things. Number one, let us rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Let us rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom or his sovereignty rules over all. God's sovereign control over all of these events is clear to see throughout the Revelation. He moves all things according to his purpose to accomplish his will, even in the way he releases judgment upon the world. He has planned this particular trumpet down to the very hour of the day. In his meticulous sovereignty, he sends his judgment upon men through Satan. The fifth and sixth trumpets are demon-commissioned judgments from our sovereign God. God is in no way, as we learn throughout Scripture from the beginning to the end, God is in no way the author of evil, but he is in complete control over it. He sets the boundaries for it, and nothing happens without his approval and control, which means that God's wrath will not miss its target. 
It also means that God's vengeance will not be poured out on an undeserving person. He wields the weapons of his sovereignty with divine precision. No demon, no man can move one inch beyond what God has purposed to allow. And as believers, we should take comfort in the sovereignty of God, that the world is not spinning out of control. It is very much accomplishing the purpose that he set and established for it. And we should also take comfort in this, that the sovereign one has placed his seal upon those who believe. If your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've come to recognize your need of forgiveness from the sins of your life and you have cast yourself upon him and you have turned from your sin in trusting in Christ, the seal of God rests upon you. His loving grace has cleansed sin's stain from your heart. His protection will shelter you from his unfolding wrath and he will bring you into his kingdom in his time. So, we should rejoice in the sovereignty of God. Number two, we should thank God for his grace and salvation. This is a picture of God unleashing his judgment for sin against an unbelieving world. And as believers who aren't set to receive this judgment because Jesus Christ, upon the cross, took our judgment upon himself, He received upon the cross the due penalty for the sins of his people. We deserve judgment, but that judgment was pushed upon him. It was placed upon another, and he received in his flesh what we deserved. There's no more judgment left for us. He drank the cup dry. But here's the question. What is it that separates us from those who are set to receive God's wrath in the sixth trumpet? Are they more deserving of judgment than we? Is the protection given to us as Christians in some way the result of our inherent goodness or superior moral resume? Did we simply make all the right choices in life and they made all the wrong choices in life? And the answer is no. The thing that separates us as believers set to receive God's protection from those who are unbelievers set to receive God's wrath is the mercy and grace of God. Not something we've earned. God doesn't owe us anything. In fact, if he gave us what we deserve, we would receive judgment in our own flesh. And yet God, in his mercy, according to his sovereign grace, has made us alive, though we were dead in our sins. He has cleansed our heart of sin. He has given us his Holy Spirit. And he has given us the promise that his wrath has been laid down in full upon the Son and we can go free into his kingdom. We didn't earn this. It's been given as a gift of God's grace. And so we should praise God for his grace and salvation. The thing that separates us from those in the crosshairs of God's judgment is that God set his love upon us as an act of his sovereign grace. And so this passage helps us to see the sovereignty of God in the affairs of world events, but it also humbles our hearts to remember the sovereign grace of God that saved a wretch like me. And number three, as Cody primed the pump, let us repent of sin and take refuge in Jesus. 
Repenting of sin and taking refuge in Jesus is one of those daily disciplines for us as Christians. And one of the things that we've tried to do as we incorporate that into our weekly liturgy is to let every one of us know, be reminded that we are still sinners. We're, we're not the men and women we once were, but we are still sinners who still struggle, and therefore we need to come before the Lord and humble ourselves and confess our sins daily and turn away from those sins and remember that Christ is our only hope. And we need to do that on a daily basis. But some of you in this room have never come to that point. Some of you have never come to the point of recognizing that you are a sinner rightly deserving of God's fierce judgment. This passage and so much of the revelation is warning you that you can't hide from God when his judgment falls. And you can't escape his wrath on your own. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. God doesn't owe you forgiveness. His forgiveness can't be earned, at least not by you. But God sent his son to live the righteous life we could not and to die as a substitute for those who believe so that by faith in Jesus and repentance from sin, we can receive the forgiveness of God as a gift and avoid the judgment that is set. And so, friend, I urge you today to repent and take refuge in Christ. Father, I thank you for your word. And though it is difficult and though it is challenging and though it, it afflicts our hearts in many ways, it also comforts us. And I thank you for the comfort that we can take from this passage. I thank you for the revelation that you are the sovereign one who rules over all things. And that might be a struggle for us. We can't get our minds fully around that and we're in good company. Neither could Paul. Neither could the apostle Paul. But he could say with absolute certainty that you were in control and that all things go in and for and through and go to you. And so, Lord, help us to trust in your control and help us to be thankful for what you have revealed to us with clarity, like the gospel of Jesus and the grace that you have revealed to humanity. Help us to trust in Christ and to turn away from our sin. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a people to continue to grow and to put our faith and trust in the Lord on a daily basis. Help us to be salt and light where we are because we're still a part of the world that needs to hear the gospel. So Lord, use us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.